suicide game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Time can't be Hello out there and welcome to another episode of Things I Learned While Learning Other Things. This is an attempt by me, Joe Morahan, and my brother, J.S., to provide you with a series of interesting, informative, educational, and we hope enjoyable stories that will help you navigate through those high seas of life. Today, we introduce Bjorn Borg, Why He Matters, Part 4. Hello and welcome, and thanks again for tuning in to listen to our latest podcast. This is part four of our BioBlast series that we've entitled Bjorn Borg, Why He Matters. So let's get right to it. We ended part three of this series having established that by 1980, beyond statistical supremacy upon the court and crowns won by Bjorn Borg, by age 25, he had become far more than just the number one ranked tennis player in the world. He had metamorphosed into a worldwide sensation. And beyond becoming a brand, a hero, a legend, he had been transfigured to icon status. He was arguably, with the possible exception of Muhammad Ali, Bjorn Borg was the most well-known face on planet Earth at that moment in time. And he was the protagonist of a global phenomena that London's, you know, Fleet, Fleet Street tabloids had dubbed Borg mania. And it was, it was all of that. And there existed the potential for madness wherever, whenever there was a sighting of Bjorn Borg. Girls, well, they would just go nuts, lose their minds. They would act demented, put on their freak. And, and by the way, I know someone whom would testify to the full meaning of what is putting on one's freak. A college friend of mine um, with whom you know, I've subsequently lost contact, but who would later become an astronaut, as he, as he had told me that he would when he was only 18 years old, and, and in doing so, would later become the only American pilot to have commanded five shuttle spaceflight missions. He had witnessed firsthand in life a very close parallel to what became known as Borg Phenomena. Borg mania. He was, he, my friend was an astrophysics major and he was not much prone to hyperbole. For fun, he'd memorized pi to a hundred decimal places. Come on. We, we tested him numerous times on this unlikely claim of his. And, he, and even after a few beer, beers, he was flawless. He could, he could do pi to a hundred places. <laughs> Obviously, a very precise kind of guy, as you might surmise. And you need this kind of precision in an astronaut. At least I think so. You know, none of this diversity, equity, inclusion nonsense with this guy, an astronaut. But I digress. So if, if he observed something and relayed to us just what he had witnessed occurring, there was no doubt whatsoever that what he'd witnessed just happened just as he said it did. Accuracy was his thing. 
Correct that. His version of events would be precise, as only a man who, who knew pi to 100 decimal points might make it precise. He was that kind of a guy. That is, you know, sort of unlike my stories, my version of events, which are true, well, based on truth, but could, I repeat, could prove somewhat malleable, susceptible to what I will call audience response. You know, a very Van Morrison, Irish crooner-like, you know, won't you help me sing my song on the bright side of the road sort of thing. That, does, that doesn't make my stories untrue or even inaccurate. They are true enough, flavored only, if you will, by the added value supplied by the mystery ingredients inherent in that essential, ephemeral entertainment factor. Quite, and it's quite a valid variable, and it's included for added spice whenever storytelling. I'm of Irish descent, the origin of fairy tales. You know, I appreciate the value of, of allowing someone to sing their own song, to steal their song or deny someone their own distinctive voice. Well, that would be a criminal act. Stealing their soul, the equivalent of high crimes and misdemeanors, a felony even, verboten, a complete no-no. Anyway, 50 years ago, my astronaut-to-be and former buddy told me the story of what I believe assuredly qualifies as a case of major freakout. He'd seen it live in real time. He'd been there. As a 14-year-old, he had served as an unpaid volunteer usher at Shea Stadium when the Beatles came to play New York City on August 15th, 1965. And he had informed me that he remembered... Only three things from that night. The absolute madness of the young girls. The screaming was at such a pitch and such a volume, it drowned out in totality the Beatles' play. And that by the end of the remarkably short 50-minute-only set, the exhausted, completely spent crowd, disproportionately female, exited the stadium. They exited Shea Stadium, which was now engulfed by and reeked of the smell of urine. I would think this qualifies as a freakout. It, it, you know, it may not be a human being's most important sense, but smell proves to be our most powerful sense. And that being the case, it may explain why my old buddy years later claimed he occasionally involuntarily reproduced in his mind the smell of Shea Stadium from that night, even years later, as if he was still there. So, you know, a long way around, the precedent for craziness, zaniness of Borg mania had been well established years before. But then, then suddenly in 1981, Bjorn Borg shocked the world. He was done. He announced his retirement from professional tennis. No one, no one who followed tennis could believe it. It was as sudden as that. It was all over. He had walked through, Borg did, the, the tennis center's kitchen, out the tunnel of Flushing Meadows, post-match with McEnroe, ducked into a car, drove off, out of Queens, and turned his back on professional tennis. 
just like that. Where did he go? A U.S. Uh, open official queried as he searched for Bjorn Borg, whom hadn't even returned to center court to accept his runner-up trophy. Where did he go? Borg had bolted center court after his last shot went long over the baseline, followed by the traditional, you know, at-net shaking of the hands, in this case of John McEnroe, who at that moment had now become the U.S. Open champion for the second time. As for the question, where's Bjorn Borg? He was gone, baby, gone. Bjorn Borg had just ghosted the world. And this is 30 years before lexicographers and Google recognized the term ghosting, first dating its origin to the year 2011 and its more widely known use around 2015 when, when news outlets reported that actress Charlize Theron had broken up with Sean Penn by means of ghosting him. Theron ended their engagement by simply ignoring all of Sean Penn's texts and all the phone calls he made until Sean Penn finally gave up all further efforts to contact his fiancée. I mean, this is weird, but that's Hollywood for you. Anyway, while, while Bjorn Borg was making his way through that Flushing Meadows kitchen on Sunday, September 13, 1981, at center court, John McEnroe was making a very gracious winner's acceptance speech in advance of, of that Often with McEnroe, ticklish but sometimes prickly, meet the press post-victory interview to follow. But Bjorn Borg, he had already moved on. Borg would not be addressing the press post-match, assessing his play or McEnroe's play, nor for that matter his mid-match death threat received um, you know, that had been phoned into the U.S. Open officials the previous night during his victory over New York fan favorite Jimmy Connors in the semifinals, nor would he be commenting on the death threat against him received by U.S. Open officials just moments prior to his finals rematch against McEnroe that very afternoon. And it, it would later be reported by one of Borg's close friends that he'd cautioned Bjorn to lock the door of the car as he hastened to leave the tennis center post that loss to McEnroe. And it was only much later that he would begin efforts to understand the full meaning of Borg's dead-eyed, staring straight ahead as he pulled away from the stadium. You know, his eyes locked in maintaining that distant battlefield gaze known only to warriors and to which has been attributed the label that hundred-mile stare. In prior times, it was we called it shell shock. It was known as battle fatigue. Today, we just call it PTSD. Borg, you know, a Stephen Hawking-like black hole of a competitor, a Teddy Rooseveltian, if there is ever one, man in the arena, never demonstrated any emotion whatsoever on a tennis court. And he left as he played. And during the entirety of, uh, uh, of his career, he had revealed nothing to his opponents on the court. 
He offered up not a clue as to what he was thinking, how he was feeling, whether he was frustrated by his own play with the officials or with his opposition. You know, whether he might be injured in any way that his energy level might be waning or depleted completely during a match. Nada, nothing. He was giving up nothing. Therefore, he had been a complete and total enigma to all his opponents. And as such... Borg remained a scary, nerve-wracking automaton, a never-to-be-rattled opponent. He displayed no weakness. Psych you know, psychological studies of the nature and typology as undertaken by Daniel Ellsberg of the Think Tank um, research organization, the RAND Corporation, uh, you know, he of he of later Pentagon Papers fame or infamy, as as you see things. You know, precursor of Julian Assange and WikiLeaks and Edward Snowden. Um, Ellsberg, you know, coincidentally died only this past week. But studies such as Ellsberg authored have confirmed over and over again one simple but important point that humans have been and are far, far more afraid of unknown risks. The fear provoked in humans by uncertainty is far scarier than that induced by known risks. You know, if they're known, they're of a nature they can understand and they can assemble some sort, you know, of defense against the perils posed. You know, once, once again, now that I think about it, we've come across those ferocious, treacherous, Rumsfeldian, unknown unknowns once again. You know, the lack of clarity is unsettling. Yeah, like like the occupation risk posed after the shock and awe campaign was over in Iraq, for example. Occupation risk. One's imagination often turns dark quickly. Anyway, Borg played on that human tendency, that, that sensing of danger and danger in proximity. But that brief moment of indecision that comes with it as to whether to fight or to take flight, Borg played that uncertainty to his advantage. And he used that to his advantage for more than a decade as a pro professional tennis player. And to be competing against a man who revealed nothing proved quite unnerving. Numerous opponents had talked about it over the years. It was real and it was a factor. Ice Borg was a machine that could not be rattled. It operated for the purposes for which it had been designed. It didn't break down. It rarely malfunctioned. It knew no fear. It just played tennis and it played tennis at the highest level. That was Ice Borg. And consistent with his practices on the court, Borg, now off-court, offered no insight as to his thought presses, his feelings, or his emotional state. He offered no explanation whatsoever for his sudden retirement. He yielded not a thing. He simply announced he was done. He was only 26 years old. Something had to have happened. I mean, what gives? Borg was insane. No one could understand. Did Borg? I mean, I think it's a fair question. Euripides had told us 2,500 years ago, never call a mortal happy until you have seen how on his last day he descends to the grave. No one does this. 
Something had to have happened. Nobody walks away at the age of 26 from the top. What was it? There had to be a story here. Of course there was a story. We just didn't know what that story was. Bjorn Borg himself might not have known the entirety of the story. He didn't know perhaps the whole story. But he was a very he was very much aware and he has admitted so that the beginning of the end of his tennis career had not begun in that moment that day when he lost the fourth set of the US Open Championship to John McEnroe on Sunday, September 13, 1981. No, there had been for Borg an earlier distinct defining moment. You know, a, a, a variation on that Churchillian speech metaphor when he talked about, you know, not the end of the beginning, but the beginning of the end and all that stuff. This had taken place for Bjorn Borg. He knew it, but we did not. We couldn't know that moment had occurred because Borg had not yet revealed that very private but momentous moment. He hadn't shared it with the world yet. And we are not going to, to share it here either because we've taken enough of your time already today. Adopting and relying upon the famous Augustinian prayer when he begged of God, please, please make me chaste, but not yet. And it, you know, again, off point, but still, as as. A Nigerian cab driver in Chicago once so longingly and so dreamingly related to me as if we were going on, a, you know, as if he were going on a hajj to Mecca. He had told me of his three, his annual three-month sojourn back to his home in Lagos, Nigeria, where he claimed to drive around in his bright yellow Cadillac. And then he said, what to me are famous words. He said, so many women's. And I believed every, every word he spoke was the absolute truth. And like Bill Clinton often said, and, and this, this case, surely he would have done that in that very moment. I felt his pain. But as had St. Augustine, we therefore suggest, now is not the time. Not the time to reveal that moment in the life of Bjorn Borg. The time will come, but not yet. We will get there. I'm thinking Franz Kafka when he wrote despairingly, there's hope, but not for us. But Kafka was wrong. There is hope, and we will get there. There is so much more to think about when studying the life and career of Bjorn Borg before the moment is revealed. So we hope you will return when we upload our next episode of Bjorn Borg, Why He Matters, Part 5. Thanks for listening in. We'll be back. Hope you will be.
life Tell her I've changed, become a new man I promise I will and I know that I can When did the skies change, when did we turn back? How am I ever gonna get myself back? The sea's now boiling and I'm getting cold I've lost my sails, got to find a way home Alone in my boat, I think of my wife I'm lost in a drift on the high seas of life From tomorrow, days from the land Nothing can save me unless fate lends a hand Storm, it is worse than I no control The wind and the waves are taking their toll I look to the stars, there's none I can see I'm afraid fate, she has answered me Only moments my story will end There was a story I wanted to send Oh, how I dream for the calm of the sea A beautiful face smiling back at me The sea is boiling and I'm getting cold I've lost my sails, got to find a way home When did the skies change, when did they turn black? How am I ever gonna get myself back? Alone in my boat, I think of my wife I'm lost in a drift on the high seas of life When did the skies change, when did they turn black? How am I ever gonna get myself back? Alone in my boat I think of my wife I'm lost in a drift on